Hello everyone, it's December 23rd, 2020, the worst year ever. Um, tomorrow is my 32nd birthday. And uh, today we filmed the last episode of the year for Lady Scientist podcast with Francisca Seeger. She's a computational protein designer and has had a really interesting career, including uh, working on x-ray crystallography which is basically the way that we're able to determine the structure of proteins. It's a fascinating field. It requires some intense dedication, maybe a little bit of magic. We talk about that in the episode. Um, but halfway through, I found out that she played chess competitively from a young age all the way through college and was basically internationally ranked. So I got super excited. I love the show, The Queen's Gambit on Netflix with um, a bunch of great actors and just love how well done the show is. And so uh, we get into some of her experience in real life of uh, playing as, as a woman, as a young girl in these circuits and the, the intensity of those um, situations. So thank you all for listening, for subscribing um comment with suggestions questions if you know people who you think would be great on the show i'd love to hear about it all of our links are available on the website ladyscientistpodcast.com which my wonderful husband built and made and it's looking beautiful so thank you for joining us on this journey in this crazy year 2020 i know it's been kind of a shit show but um this has been such a great outlet and i'm hoping that you are all getting so much inspiration, knowledge, positivity from the experiences of our amazing guests. So thank you. So I normally I ask before we start recording what like to make sure that I have your job title down. Yeah, exactly. But I, I'd love for you to just tell us what your, <laughs> what yeah. your job is and how you would describe yourself as a, as a scientist. Okay, so my official job title is kind of long. It's, uh, it, I'm a senior computational protein design scientist at Novo Nordisk here in Seattle. Um, that's, that's kind of a mouthful. Um, I don't know why they gave me such a long title. Senior scientist would have been just fine, you know, <laughs> but I like it. And it, it's kind of very descriptive for what I do. Um, which is, I've been at Novo Nordisk for three months now, and um, I'm working as a, a computational protein design scientist or engineer, and primarily working on rare diseases. And um, what I do there is kind of collaborate with uh, teams of biologists or um, people who are kind of like testing very early um, drug candidates, um, kind of like an early development. And um, I evaluate targets for the feasibility for the uh, computational design of small mini proteins or peptides um, specifically targeted at oral availability. Amazing. So you, you've only been at Novo for three months? Mm -hmm. Yeah, And exactly. you were at Amazon before that? Exactly. Yeah, I was at Amazon okay. for almost a year and a half before that. Um, and before that, I was a postdoc in the Baker Lab. In the Baker Lab. Yeah, I was going to say we, the the person I had on the last episode, it's kind of, I think, similar to you and I, like we've met once, have mm -hmm. we met twice, maybe at like a women in bio event? Yeah, there was a women in bio event at Lyle that I remember, um, 
where I think Brian introduced us or we yeah. ran into each other, but like we had the Brian connection. <laughs> yeah, we have like similar circles in Seattle, but we've never like hung out or anything. So exactly, it's, yeah. it's kind of a fun, like you have this parallel path to me in a way. And so I'm excited to like get into some of that because I don't, I don't fully know like what you've worked on before, what you're doing now. So it'll be fun to like get into that. That's awesome. Um, so can you talk like what was your transition from Amazon to Novo? Like what what was that? Yeah, um, it was actually it was kind of uh, weird to start a job in a global pandemic, to be honest. Like I've been to the Novo office a couple of times, mostly for IT reasons, but I've never actually worked there. Um, the transition was um, kind of um, interesting because it's, it's very different to work for a tech company and then transition into um, a, a Danish pharma company. And so um, I had to learn a lot about like the cultural differences of um, Amazon versus Novo. But it's been actually a fairly easy because uh, Danish people are incredibly nice. <laughs> and uh, everybody is super friendly and I had never really worked uh, for a pharma company before. And so I, what I really appreciate is kind of um, that there are so many experts for every single detail of the process. So when I was a postdoc, I would, you know, design my, like identify the target that I wanted to engage and then design my potential uh, binders against that target. And uh, I would have to test them, like order them myself and test them myself and then an analyze like the data that I got and then iterate on them. But at Novo, everybody kind of like has their own speciality and I can just really focus on what I'm best at, which is computational protein design. And that's been really fun. First led you to protein design and kind of how mm -hmm. you got into it. Yeah, um, I think that's kind of like the path of like how I became a scientist or how I, I got to um, do what I'm doing right now. So it kind of all started, I'll start at the beginning. Um, so um, I've always been really fascinated with science and like in, um, in my teenage years, I was really fascinated with physics because my uncle is a physicist. And um, my mom was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was fairly young, when I was 10. And I tried to read about it and I learned that at that time, which is still true today, like we really don't understand that much about molecular mechanisms of disease. Um, but what I did learn is that proteins um, like through reading, but also through my high school biology classes that proteins execute essentially all important functions in the human body and in the cells. And um, they are kind of like the executors of disease. And um, when I studied biochemistry as an undergrad, my mind was just completely blown by, you know, I, I distinctly remember learning about like cloning proteins into you know other organisms for like heterologous expression i'm just like well this is like the coolest thing um so um i decided to pursue a phd in uh, protein crystallography and structural biology because i was i'm a very visual person i played competitive chess for most of my teenage years like this kind of like pattern matching and um three-dimensional visualization really spoke to me and um yeah, I pursued a PhD in structural biology on a drug target that was highly implicated in cardiovascular diseases. Uh, the enzyme is called soluble granulate cyclase, and I've had a love-hate relationship with it. 
I loved it. A love-hate relationship. <laughs> I love that. I really liked it, but it didn't like me back that much. So um, <laughs> it was it was really fascinating, and I learned a lot about protein-protein um, uh, interactions and how they are really important in mediating health and disease because this protein. Um, itself consisted of two different chains that needed to kind of come together in like exactly the right way in order to like make a productive uh, product. And um, that was so fascinating to me that like, uh, like shifts of a couple of angstroms can really make it the difference between pulmonary hypertension and a healthy individual. And um, I decided that I wanted to go further down the protein-protein interaction path and at the same time, I also recognized that uh, my partner at the time was a com compu uh, computer scientist. And so like I kind of like had this peripheral exposure to data science and machine learning and all of that kind of stuff. And um, so I, like my appreciation for protein-protein interactions and kind of like this fascination for this upcoming field of data science and machine learning um, kind of came at the same time. And then I learned about David Baker's lab in Seattle. And I was just like, oh, wow, I really want to postdoc with this person because it seems like um, they are working on designing protein-protein interactions from scratch to interact with specific disease states, but they're also using computational tools to achieve that. And um, I thought that was the coolest thing. And I really wanted to learn more about that. And um, so, yeah, I interviewed with David and I, he offered me a postdoc position and I moved to Seattle from uh, the Bay Area where I was at. Uh, I was at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. And um, yeah, um, and when I came to David's lab, I realized that uh, the protein design program Rosetta is like not everything that I had hoped it to be. <laughs> Uh, it's, you know, it can do certain things really well, but other things uh, it can't do so well. And it, it requires a lot of manual input and kind of like curation in order to really make projects work. And uh, I realized that um, this, this vision of making completely new proteins from scratch to engage any uh, drug target of interest was kind of music of the future, as we say in German. And, uh, but I really wanted, I was really fascinated by this idea that you could theoretically just take any structurally defined drug target and make a custom protein for it um, uh, to interact with it in like the specific way that you needed for whatever indication you were interested in. And so I embarked on this giant project, which we called the protein protein interaction benchmark to test all different protocols that we had to generate completely de novo protein-protein interfaces from scratch. And I specifically targeted, my specific focus was um, still auto-inflammatory cytokines because I was kind of always fascinated by that starting from when my mom was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and like went a little bit away from that with um, cardiovascular diseases, even though there's a lot of inflammation going on there too. And um, and also worked with um, many other people in the Baker lab to kind of like really have a plethora of different targets to really make this method generalize. And uh, yeah, I designed kind of the first de novo binder against the IL-17 and IL-23 receptor cytokine. And I believe that is currently being um, commercialized out of the Baker lab by um, former colleagues of mine. 
and uh, yeah, that was super cool to um, learn the ropes of computational protein design. I took a lot of data science classes um, while I was a postdoc in order to be more efficient programming and to really be able to analyze these giant data sets that come out of Rosetta. And um, yeah, that was just overall a pretty cool experience and kind of like my transition from being a wet lab scientist to a computational scientist. <clears throat> yeah, and then, yeah, that's kind of how I got to protein design. And then um, I, I was always a little bit nervous as like an international person um, in the US about um, what my career would look like and how, what my dependency on uh, my visa status would be. And so I, I treated my, my career search or my career design almost as like a research project to figure out what exactly it is that I wanted to do after I finished my postdoc because it was always pretty clear to me that I wasn't really interested in an academic career, much to David Baker's disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> We've had some heated discussions about this. Oh, um, sure. Uh, it's, it's kind of sad that uh, uh, in most academic circles, like alternative careers are not really uh, respected as much as becoming a professor. Um, but I really, you know, just knowing what you don't want isn't necessarily enough to pursue what you do want. And uh, I was really lucky that through a lot of networking um, at Women in Bio, I kind of very um, serendipitously um, got my first consulting gig <laughs> about two years before I finished my postdoc. Um, I, I was put in touch with somebody who had just started um, a startup in um, San Francisco and was hiring a data scientist. And I was really interested in how companies are looking at the intersection of data science and protein engineering. And, um, yeah, that really gave me some initial insight into what it's like to work for a company. And I've had this, I had this consulting company for the last two years of my postdoc. And um, yeah, it's, it was super interesting. Amazon was actually one of my clients and um, they wanted me to come on board full time. And I was kind of evaluating whether I, I, I would want to spin out my own company out of the Baker Lab or, you know, join a larger, more established company full time right out of my postdoc and um, eventually I decided that it would be a really cool opportunity to join Amazon and kind of experience what that would be like. Um, so I did that right after my postdoc as a research scientist at Amazon working on the intersection of like life sciences and machine learning, which was really fascinating just from a learning perspective and also completely different environment to academia, which is like all I had known apart from my consulting work. And um, yeah, uh, then I decided to join Novo just like for the sheer uh, opportunity of like working for a company that can really push molecules through the clinic and um, have like a real impact. Wow. Um, you've touched on the, the kind of cultural shift from academia into Amazon. Can you talk about that a little bit more and what that you know, big tech environment is like? Yeah, um, it was kind of interesting. I think we were in like a little bit of an Amazon bubble um, since we weren't necessarily involved with like any of the daily cloud or retail operations, <laughs> obviously. Um, and um, what I really enjoyed at Amazon was um, 
this clear shift from being in an individual contributor role and and interacting with other people who also had their primary objective of um, having a first author paper in you know whatever field to achieve their next career stage to really being on a team and having a joint goal that we could work towards and it didn't really matter who contributed what as long as, as everybody contributed to the goal and we got it done in the end. And I think that's just much more in alignment with my personality and how I operate because like I just really want to see things work and like do cool science, but I don't necessarily care um, you know, whether I have like 80% of the contribution to this project. I think if somebody else can contribute to this project and we can all work in a team and we can leverage our individual strength, then that's much better than me trying to take a long time to do, to do something that's not necessarily in my wheelhouse. Absolutely. And that's been super cool. And just um, like the environment at Amazon that I was in was very startup-y, I would say. And um, it was pretty cool to just ideate new ideas and come up with um, different projects that kind of like fit um, the unique capabilities of Amazon, uh, which was kind of like a completely new set of parameters than I, that I was used to before. Sure. Wow. And were you working like, cause I know that's how the, the idea of how Amazon is run is that each team is supposed to act like a little startup within this larger organization. Mm -hmm. Were you, what, what building were you in? What was like your, what was your team's composition? Like, cause I, I don't, I know a few scientists who have gone to Amazon now and I'm always curious, like what, what that looks like, you know, do you guys have like a shared office or is there, are there wet benches at all? I mean, you do dry you know, computational biology now, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I can, I have to be a little bit careful kind of like oh, to yeah. answer these questions, obviously, no but, worries. um, yeah, yeah. Um, we were, broad, um, broad strokes, broad the, strokes. Yeah. yeah. Um, the team composition was really interesting. I, um, I exclusively worked with PhD level scientists of like all sorts of different domains, which was really, really cool. Um, my manager, um, has a PhD or like had a still has a PhD but it's my former <laughs> manager so had a PhD in physics and was a machine learning expert and um, there was another uh, former Baker Lab colleague um, on my team who um, had a computer uh, computer science and software development background from Microsoft and there was another structural biologist with an MD background so it was kind of um, and a medical doctor um, it was just like really interesting to have like this type of team composition and to really shift. I would say I was like the most biologist person on that team, which is not something that I usually identify with. You know, I feel like anything that is bigger than a protein kind of scares me, you know, like cell level interactions, it's kind of like too much for me. So I don't self-identify as a biologist, but like, I just like, um, because I was, um, the most, you know, wet lab trained and biology minded person on that team, like a lot of like these questions fell to me, um, which was really interesting. Um, yeah, we were kind of um, a little startup within kind of like a larger um, undisclosed organization. And it was, 
it was kind of cool and a little bit isolating too because it was definitely not um what we worked on was definitely not kind of like in the main wheelhouse of amazon so we were always kind of like the odd scientists in the corner <laughs> a little oh, bit funny. and um yeah it was really cool it was um it was kind of interesting to observe how a company structure works that was set up to to be optimized for something completely different but um i really appreciated um the the style of so amazon has these leadership principles and also principles um to approach problems and one of them is working backwards and um you always have to work backwards from the customer and kind of like the problem that the customer has and i think that a lot of academic grant writing would probably be, um a lot more effective if you know like um we were trying to always argue from like a perspective of like solving a specific problem, or at least that's like what I think because I'm like a very application-minded person. Um, and uh, the grant writing process was also completely different. Amazon operates in what they call PR FAQs, which are press release frequently asked questions. And the way that you propose new projects is to essentially write a press release about um, uh, yeah, the press release that would be published if your project um, is completed successfully, which is kind of cool and was a new way wow. for me to think about science. Huh, I had yeah. not heard of that before. That's so interesting. Yeah, press release. Cool. What was what was the term but, again? Uh, frequently asked questions, PRFAQ. That's so neat. I love that. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting, like some Lyle, for instance, um, you know, we've thought a lot about culture and principles. And I think being close to Amazon, you can't help but um, hear about how these principles guide the work there. And um, it's interesting to like hear a scientist's perspective of like how you adapt a customer facing organization and principle structure to um, the science. I think that's that's pretty neat that you like you actually took something away from that and and it it guided your way of doing your work, which is in my mind so different from what most of the um, folks who work at Amazon here in Seattle at least are are focused on doing right, which is yeah, like absolutely. improving a customer experience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, I mean, sometimes don't get me wrong, sometimes that was a struggle. And there was definitely a disconnect between, you know, the scientific process and like how Amazon operates. But um, for me personally, it was just a really interesting learning experience. And while these leadership principles are really ambiguous and can be interpreted very individually, um towards everybody's individual liking sometimes it is quite interesting how how strongly they influence the company culture and how top of mind they are and how often they are used to argue for specific um directions or to make decisions interesting so um i know we can't get into the details but were you still working on um, de novo designed proteins at Amazon? 
Was that um, the focus? So um, I, I was I was doing protein design, but um, yeah, I can't I can't talk about what that was de novo yeah. or <laughs> anything well, else. Yeah. What, the reason I ask is because you mentioned you know after you you had kind of gotten your your footing in the Baker Lab that you realized that de novo proteins in some sense are the music of the future. I like that yeah. that term. Um, and I, I think I've also had some realizations after working with some of some of those folks, um, just to the limitations and also things like we don't know necessarily. Or I, I do want to ask you this other question. Sorry, I'm all over the place this morning. <laughs> no, this is um, great. But have you had an arc of like you you were doing de novo proteins for a while and now you're back to more of like um rational protein design or borrowing proteins from nature you know just curious if you've like shifted back at all or if you're yeah. still mainly using Rosetta and designing de novo proteins I think that's a really great question so I think the way that I'm framing this in my head is I've really done technology development in the Baker lab that is not necessarily ready for prime time yet, if that makes sense. So um, I think in the Baker lab, I was really driven by this vision of developing algorithms that one day could just like be turnkey and automated to really generate what we call binders, just like um, de novo proteins that bind target of interest in like a specific fashion that are, is needed for functionality. And um, while I think that was really cool and kind of like an ambitious goal and worked at like a very low percentage uh, success rate. Oh, I think my neighbors are having their uh, okay. lawn mode right now. <laughs> I hope that's not too loud. No, um, that's fine. Um, while, you know, I think that was a really fun academic exercise and I think it's definitely gonna be important in the future. If you are actually um, trying to develop new therapeutics or vaccines or um, diagnostics, um, it's much smarter to leverage the um, biological or like native protein information that you have. So um, in reality, if you're trying to work on real world applications in whatever shape or form, um, you, you might be well advised to incorporate some of the information that you have. So um, to speak in a little bit less abstract terms, like very often, or if we're lucky, we have um, crystal structures of how our protein target of interest engages with a native protein in the body or something like this. And so borrowing information of how other proteins interact with the target of interest and maybe taking hotspot residues from that protein or even full secondary structure elements to use as inspiration to make smaller mini protein binders or peptides is generally not a bad idea because then you have a starting point that is a little bit more reliable and um, um, and you're not kind of uh, necessarily dependent on um, a really well-working de novo interface design protocol, um, depending on like the shape and um, surface composition of your target that you want to bind to, that can be very challenging. Um, and sometimes um, there was like a really uh, a recent really cool uh, preprint from the Baker Lab that uh, was uh, incorporating something that I've been interested in a long time, which is um, 
used for um, antigen um, stabilization and development. So like having like discontinuous elements of like, a, for instance, like a three-dimensional B-cell epitope and trying to figure out how you can stabilize that into like a smaller manufacturable unit that you can then use as like an immunogen for vaccine development or something like this is super interesting. And so for, for these types of applications, you also don't really want to go completely de novo because you need to elicit an immune response against like this natively occurring protein. I see. Are there instances of these de novo proteins um, in clinical trials? That's like one space I'm not familiar with and I'm just curious. Yeah, if I think the most... Um, the two examples that I can think of, and I have to admit that I'm not completely informed of like which stage they're at right now, but um, um, there are two companies that were founded by former people um, at the Institute for Protein Design. Uh, one of them is called PVP, Protein versus Protein, um, which manufactured an enzyme that can be formulated into a pill to degrade gluten in the stomach for celiac patients. Um, and so um, that is currently, I'm, I'm pretty sure an IND has been filed. I don't know which clinical trial stage it's in, but um, that's something that where a native enzyme was stabilized and redesigned using Rosetta that is currently being pushed into the clinic for, for celiac indication. And then um, something that's really cool that was done uh, or pioneered primarily by my friend Danielle, who was my mentor when I first joined the Baker Lab, um, is an IL-2 mimetic technology that is currently being pursued by a company called Neolucan that spun out of the Baker Lab. And um, I know that they definitely filed an IND and might have entered phase one, but I'm not entirely sure. And so um, everybody in the community is carefully watching um, specifically the IL-2 mimetic to see uh, you know, what the immunogenicity is going to be like and how the efficacy and um, yeah, how, how it just pairs in the clinic because there's just really very little information about completely de novo design proteins um, from clinical trials. Like this is, this is kind of like the, the bleeding edge of this technology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one thing that, you know, I. I work in more of like the gene therapy cells, cell therapy space. And so many of these technologies are just cutting edge and we don't have a ton of clinical data on them yet. And so mm -hmm. um, it's interesting that, you know, hopefully like in the next few years, we'll have um, a better understanding of how the human body reacts to these, these reagents um, being present. So, yeah, that's really cool. Okay, oh, can I ask oh, you a question? Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> so yeah. I'm curious how you see, since you've, I know you've worked with a lot of protein designers at Lyle, um, how do you kind of like see the future of protein design paired with like gene and cell therapy? Um, you know, like some people that I'm talking to think that like cell therapy is, is, is the music of the future and like protein design or protein engineering will just aid to make the appropriate um, switches or surface receptors or like what you want to call it. So like, I'm just curious how you see how these two fields kind of will merge in the future and what's, what's going to be the next cool thing there. Yeah. I mean, what, you know, in broad strokes, what I was working on was trying to merge, um, you know, chimeric antigen receptor 
T-cell therapy with uh, some of these de novo proteins that have come out of the Baker lab. Um, and I'll say like cars in general are, you know, these massive fusion proteins that have a binder and, um, you know, often it's a SCFV and then it, there's just all these different protein domains that have um, been mushed together to form this thing. And I think for me coming into that field, I was pretty impressed that they work so well at treating um, some of these hematological uh, malignancies. Mm -hmm. um, and we still don't fully understand why they don't work great for solid tumor cancers. But I actually think the last couple of years, the clinical trials um, that are coming out for things like melanoma with the BCMA car looks pretty promising. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of wild to me that you can take a cancer patient who's um, been treated with every type of chemo and um, drug available and they've failed and failed and failed at all of these different treatments. And they're really like the end stage um, disease and you can take their T cells out of their body, transform them to be expressing these cars and put them back in and the, their own T cells are going after the cancer and killing it. I just think it's, it's kind of mind blowing, right? It's like, mind blowing. Yeah, no, it's like, it's, it's super cool. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really impressed by what you're doing. So this is, this is awesome. <laughs> well, and you, uh, I'm going to lose my train of thought, but, um, you know, you touched on the, the, you know, protein design kind of advancing with this. And I think there's definitely room for improving the safety of these cellular therapies because you've studied cytokines. So you know how, how hazardous they can be in the body. I mean, cytokines yeah. are responsible for a lot of the, um, you know, disorders like you were talking about with multiple sclerosis. And there are certain cytokines that are extremely deadly to other cell types and um, can really wreak havoc. So I think kind of dialing in the T cell product so that it's potent in, in the cancer tissue you're going after, but not normal tissue is a really, really important part of, um, of those programs. And a lot of good people are working on that, but yeah, I don't know, like, you know, I think there's a lot of exciting tools like the heterodimers that um, Zebo uh, worked on and the switches that Mark, you know, Mark LaJoy worked on um, or developed. Um, I think there's a lot of potential there, but I, I do worry about the, um, the immunogenicity question and that, that with the CRISPR field also, we're worried about that as well yeah. um, because we just don't know, we don't have enough clinical data yet to say for sure that this expressing this giant enzyme that's not a human enzyme yeah, I know it's gonna be like okay so you know time I guess time will tell and you know we have to appreciate all the all the people who volunteer for some of these early trials because it's oh, really absolutely yeah um sorry I got on like a tangent there <laughs> no, <that's fine. laughs> peptides from what I remember of my experience with Novo here they're interested in these like mini peptide binders. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so 
Novo has kind of like been historically a protein engineering and peptide company. So that's really like their identity. Um, they've actually uh, started a company and fared very well for a long time around a single molecule, you know, and um, and um, they are just recognizing that maybe um, they should branch out a little bit more, or at least that's kind of like how I'm understanding it after having been there for three months. And um, yeah, it's 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 quite quite fascinating. I think there's um, um, there's quite a bit of interest um, around smaller peptides for metabolic diseases and. Um, um, specifically like oral availability and um, how things can be targeted to different tissues and um, different cell types, uh, which is really interesting. And so, I mean, talking about cytokines again, like what I find fascinating, mind blowing and incredibly frustrating is that the same cytokine can have like completely different effects in different tissues, right? And um, there's concentration dependent effects and it's really complicated how, uh, you know, IL-17 can have like anti-inflammatory effects and like, um, uh, like part of the body and then inflammatory effects in, in other parts. And so um, I think trying to really figure out how to do um, tissue targeting and oral uptake for, to prevent the necessity of, of um, you know, bi-monthly injections or something like this is really interesting. How, how do you, um, how, is it like ligand based, the, the tissue targeting with these peptides? Yeah, so I think we're just trying to figure this out and I'm definitely not an expert on this, but, um, what, what I'm understanding is that like there's this emerging data um, coming up that um, that is not necessarily kind of like, um, how should I say this, like individual protein name based, but there's specific, um, there was recently like a really interesting GPCR paper that was published um, where, uh, which in my unprofessional opinion in this field was the, um, uh, the authors presented data for the first time of how different isoforms of the same protein have different effects in different tissue types. And so um, I think this is kind of like the beginning of what I understand and like maybe correct me if I'm wrong is kind of like an underappreciated field of biochemistry, which is how do different isoforms of the same protein um, play wildly different roles in different tissue types. And so as like a structural biologist and biochemist, that's kind of complicated to me because, you know, crystallographers kind of like to crystallize the dominant form and then pretend that the other isoform, uh, you know, does something but like works essentially the same. And I know that's kind of like, um, you know, being a little bit mean to the, my field of origin, but uh, that's definitely how I approached uh, my PhD thesis, um, even though there were other isoforms of the protein that I worked on, we really mostly ignored them. And uh, I think there's, there's recent data emerging that say that um, we probably shouldn't ignore all of these different isoforms and uh, see what we can leverage for therapeutic applications. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, one of my early 
grad school studies, we were interested in how transcription factors determine, you know, the expression of different different isoforms of a gene. And um, the main area that I refer to myself, I, there's a one of the databases that was generated is like the tissue specificity of expression of these different isoforms of the gene. And it is pretty important to know when you're designing, you know, say a, an RT-PCR assay that's gonna measure the expression of this particular gene, you actually need to know which exons are in there. Yeah. Or else you'll, you might not be covering the correct, you know, exon-exon junction. Um, but there's so much <laughs> that we don't know, right? That yeah, so much, yeah. <laughs> that's why it's cool to do what we do because we can always learn new things every day. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. With the, tell me, cause I've, I've worked with Matt who was a crystallographer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Matt Big. Yeah, and, and he's at Neolucan now. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've heard that crystallography it kind of has this re reverence from other biologists that like it it's a special kind of art form basically <laughs> and i've yeah. even heard like that certain crystallographers you know they only play like classical music when they're in the lab because there needs to be this yeah. you know like perfect condition for the crystals to form so can you talk about that did you have any like quirky yes. <laughs> quirky crystallographers you worked with oh yes absolutely it's kind of it's an interesting field I mean there's um there's definitely like a little bit of what I would call voodoo or black magic um surrounding this field um I've definitely heard of crystallographers who only use like this very specific horse tail hair to um to see to start seeding their um their crystallization conditions and um they swear by like this one cat whisker or something like this i mean like to be fair like um animal hair is used as kind of like a nucleation initiator for um for crystallization sometimes so it is like an actual technique to um you know mostly use um a solution that has like formed maybe microcrystals to initiate um seeding of larger crystals with like animal hair or other things that can like provide a nucleation basis or something like this and um but yeah it's just since we don't really know uh, a priori what type of conditions a protein will crystallize in if ever you know um everybody kind of like has their own secret sauce and depending on um what type of conditions have uh, proven to be successful for you in the past, you kind of get a little bit attached to them. And so I would say that process is, it's systematic. I wouldn't necessarily say it's scientific. <laughs> um, I love that. I've actually, I've, um, so my grad school protein was a heterodimer and um, it was incredibly, it was like, um, um, and there was no, um, covalent crosslink that um, that would kind of like staple these two subunits together. So it was actually quite challenging to produce um, a predominantly predominantly heterodimeric solution. And I, I used a lot of native mass spec to quantify 
how much homodimer of the two homodimer types do I have in solution? How much heterodimer do I actually have? And so um, my main contribution to this field as a graduate student was actually the crystal structure of a heterodimer of the catalytic subunit of the wild type human protein um, of this, this cardiovascular disease drug target, but I could never reproduce those crystal conditions. Even with the same protein prep and like the same crystallization buffers, all I got were heterodimeric, um, homodimeric crystals instead of like the heterodimer crystal. But like the heterodimer crystal that I got crystallized to, or like diffracted to 1.9 angstrom resolution and I got a beautiful data set. And um, they are, you know, tenth of thousands of refractions that point towards your model being correct. And so I had lots of philosophical discussions with friends during grad school, whether this was science because I couldn't reproduce what I had done, even though I had a giant data set that kind of like was consistent in itself, you know, it's kind of, it's wow. a little bit of like a dark art and yeah. um, you can definitely... It, it, like crystallography is kind of like an interesting case when it comes to science um, reproducibility because like nobody would probably argue with me that like the data point that I got in this crystal structure was not like an important scientific piece of data and obviously like I published my work and like I deposited the structure because it was a contribution to the field but other people who are talking a lot about reproducibility are saying like well it's not really science if you can't repeat it, but it, it really breaks down in like the field of crystallography a little bit. <laughs> that's interesting. I didn't know that. I mean, cause that's what I hear. Like you're laying these trays, you have different buffer conditions. Again, I am, I have no background in crystallography and I really have a very loose understanding of how it all works, but you know, maybe there was like slightly different air pressure conditions that day or something that you just you know yeah allowed. I mean it's really so you're you're operating with really small volumes right like so a lot of these trays are like if you set up a robot tray like you're operating with like I don't know 0.2 microliters or something like this so um you know we all know how precisely a human can pipette 0.2 microliters um um, some better than others, but it's hard. And um, and a lot of the crystallization buffers are highly viscous, you know, like um, there's a lot of glycerol or like PEC molecules. My favorite PEC molecule was PEC 3500 because that's how I got my crystal. But it's just like, it's so weird. This is like almost 10 years ago and I still remember this because it makes such an impression. Um, and um, if your solutions are not perfectly mixed to like a homogeneous solution, you will inadvertently diverge from whatever percentage of these viscous molecules you have on your tube. And so it's really hard to know exactly what the precise composition of your, of your crystallization conditions are. And then, you know, as you know, like lab temperature changes, I did this in California, you know, like if the sun shines through the window, it's warmer than if it doesn't or something like this. It's just, uh, yeah, we just, that's a long winded answer to saying like, we just have no idea how proteins crystallize and like, sure. um, it's fascinating black magic. <laughs> what was like, what was that day like though, when you realized that you had a heterodimer crystal? 
Oh, it was it was awesome. You know, honestly, I um doing a, a crystallography PhD is like a little bit risky. Um I feel like with um you know, I feel like doing a PhD is hard work in any type of field, but um I don't know about like many other areas of biology or biochemistry where your success is so binary. You know, like my goal was really to get a structure of this of this molecule and um, my um, my mentor and my um, my advisor at the time like had this philosophy that like I should be focused on this one project and shouldn't have too many alternative projects. And I really put almost like all of my money on um, getting a structure like that. So it's like it was very binary success. So I was I was getting really worried. Like I think this was like well into my fourth year of my PhD um, that like I just wouldn't be successful in achieving this goal and then I would be left with kind of like a bunch of biochemical data that I might not really be able to publish well wow so like that I was I was kind of terrifying excited. yeah no it's, it's kind of terrifying and also now I'm just like you might have wanted to diversify your risk a little bit but like yeah you know it, it worked out <laughs> oh my gosh that's crazy um so you mentioned that you you played competitive chess growing up yes <laughs> can you talk about that like yeah absolutely i um uh when i was in fifth grade in germany uh, my school and my we had like a i don't know how the school system works here in the u.s super well but like um we had like a, a specific head teacher for my specific class and so he was the head of the chess club and also the youth um I don't know the person in charge of like the youth in our local chess club and I had learned the rules from my dad when I was really young and was always really fascinated by this game and so I joined the school chess club and uh with like a lot of support of my teacher at the time I uh yeah, I took um, chess training and coaching and played on like the, um, what would be the state level in the US um, pretty quickly. And so, um, yeah, it, it was super fun. Like I played um, uh, in like national German competition, like, like individually and on the team level. And um, I actually played for like the women's Bundesliga in Germany for um, a while during college. So um, wow. it's, I can talk about that for hours. It, like, it was <laughs> definitely like a very formative uh, period of my life, as I now know. I think uh, only through years of therapy, I've really been able to unpack a lot of that. <laughs> um, it's, wow. It was an incredibly, I, I credit, I talked to somebody about this yesterday, but like I credit my ability to kind of like persevere in this heavily male dominated field of structure biology and computational protein design for this long because I've just been exposed to these types of environments for a really long time. Um, I can say that it was always when I initially first started talking about it after I haven't played in about competitively in about 10 years and part of the reason why is that um, I experienced the environment to be incredibly toxic sometimes and not very warm and nurturing unfortunately. I was able to, while I was in my teenage years, 
they were always kind of like peers my age and really good friends of mine who I could lean on but um in like the adult um leagues and stuff it's like it's pretty heavily dominated by and unfortunately um humans with like not incredibly well-developed social skills <laughs> and um while I could zone a lot of that out because I was just like so into the game and into the strategy and into improving um as I was getting older it was kind of harder and harder to marry that with who I was becoming as like an individual and um yeah so I, I stopped playing unfortunately but it, it was like definitely a super interesting formative time of my life <laughs> Wow, that is so interesting. Did you, so obviously I'm going to ask if you've watched The Queen's Gambit. I have. <laughs> I feel like every single one of my friends is just like, oh, redhead chess prodigy. I wonder who should watch this Netflix series. Oh my gosh. I had wet palms for like the first couple <laughs> of episodes. It was like incredibly, like, I don't want to say triggering, but like I definitely could, uh, could feel uh the tension there wow. and I like, could really um envision of like what it must have been like for her you know um yeah because she's a fictional character right she's a fictional character yeah but like honestly a lot of like the so this played a lot earlier obviously um during the year like actually this played this I think this played during the era of the cold war um if I'm correct um, yeah that sounds right yeah um so obviously earlier than uh when I was born in 87 but um a lot of like the treatment of women in this field uh rang true to me and kind of like mirrors my experience playing chess um I unfortunately made the experiments that like you know um, boys started crying when they lost against me and like they shared with me openly that like the only reason why they didn't want to lose was because I was a girl you know and so wow we're talking about 11 12 year old children who don't probably couldn't really explain to you what sexism is so I think this just shows that some of these um yeah, some of these biases are so deeply ingrained in our society, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I had, um, I was, I think I was probably like 14 or 15 and um, chess is an incredibly objective sport. I call it a sport um, because you, you have like a, essentially a number associated with your name that represents your play strength. And right. that is the... calculated by an algorithm. So, okay. I'm going to it's close like, this because it's bright, but keep talking. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so you essentially have a number associated with your name that fairly accurately reflects on how strong you are as mm -hmm. a player. And um, I've can had you, like... Can you share your score? Or yeah. Um, it changes so I, over time? How does it, it work? It changes so... It gets calculated in like... Uh, and I actually don't really know. It's kind of... Um, a complicated algorithm that like, I didn't really fully follow, but um, it's it's um, it gets calculated based on how you perform against um, players with like different other scores. So if you win against players who are stronger than you or have a higher number than you, 
then your number increases. If you lose against players who have a lower number than you, then your score decreases roughly. Um, and so uh, there's like a German national rating and I honestly don't remember what it is, but there's also an international ELO rating. And I think when I was at my peak, I probably had an ELO rating of 2,150 or something like this, which is, you know, um, to give you like a, um, a frame of reference, like grandmasters have like 2,400 ratings or something like this. Wow. Um, yeah. So you were up there. I, I mean, I was, I was not an international master or grandmaster, but like I was, I was pretty good for like my, like I was definitely playing like on the top of the field uh, in Germany at my age group. Wow. Yeah. And so like, I'd love to hear more of your, like your take on the show. Cause I, I read somewhere that some of the games, I don't know if it, all of them were, but they are actually based on real strategy, like yeah. real oh, yeah. chess like, games. Yeah, they like the the chess checked out in that game. Like there was there was no fictional positions or anything. Like wow. it was yeah. They they really did did was well. That neat to see, like having known because even my husband, he he's big into games and used to play chess, not like on your level, but he was saying as we're watching it, like, this is a real game, you know, like they're actually doing the moves and everything. So that was fascinating to me who hasn't, you know, I was never a gamer. <laughs> like, yeah. That makes sense. I yeah, no, that makes sense. A reader growing up. So um, I actually felt like I, I learned a lot about the game just from watching that show, which is kind of incredible, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's super interesting. Like um, chess tournaments are just such a, um, mind-blowing experience it's like it's highly psychological you know like I think they like just the strategy of the moves but then there's also kind of like how you interact and look at your opponent you know and how nervous you are and like what your body language is and um it's like it's like the tension that is in the room. I remember that like my mom didn't come to any of my tournaments because she just couldn't bear the tension in the room. Wow. And um, yeah, it's like, it, it was incredibly well done, I would say. And um, I I was really feeling for her during, <laughs> during the series. It was, it was quite fascinating. Wow. Yeah, they got that really well too. I like you know for some of her games where you see it on her face like when she realizes that she's lost or she's won and she has that like you know towards the end like that kind of sheer determination and yeah. I don't know it's addictive it's like a very visceral response like it's 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 quite addictive actually um I don't I used to like play chess on my phone a little bit and like I um I famously like when I play chess I like I really have no idea what's happening around me like people can say my name and I will I'm completely zoned out so wow. it's, it's kind of it's interesting like I, I miss having like this laser focus and being that much in the zone I, I know I'm capable of that it's just really hard to recreate with other types of things I can do that a little bit when I write code or like I, I look at protein structures but it's like it's it's kind of a it sucks you into like this alternate reality where all you see is the board. <laughs> wow, yeah. that's fascinating. 
Um, so one thing from the show that I actually really enjoyed was the the Russian component of like her getting ready to play. Can you hear me? Okay, I'm just yeah. adjusting my. Yeah. My ears are too small for my AirPods too, and so they'll like slowly I have the pop same out. Problem. I have the same problem. I feel like they should make better earplugs for small ears. I have tiny ears. <laughs> yeah, I want. Yeah, it's ridiculous, but um, was the Russian component because I actually one of my first mentors and long term mentors is Russian, and you know he trained me at the bench. He trained mm -hmm. me how to pipette and. I was, I was still in college at, at Berkeley actually. And at the time, you know, he was a little bit younger than he is now, obviously. And he was very intense. Like he, he definitely wanted me to be like laser focused on this goal of working on these therapies. And if I, I remember one time I was reading about the Olympics, like in the break room, in the paper. Yeah. <laughs> and he criticized me for it. And I don't know, there's something about like that like Russian intensity in this like training environment that, that I saw reflected in, in the show. And it kind of like brought back a lot of those memories for me, which it's, it's just an interesting way of like being brought up as a scientist, essentially. Like yeah, being no, expected to like only focus on your science and like nothing else. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, it's, And that really resonates with me. My um, my chess coach growing up, like I had individual chess coaching lessons. Um, he wasn't Russian, but he was Ukrainian. And I think um, some of the culture definitely translates. Um, and it was just very regimented and very, um, you know, he was just like, you're really good. You just need to execute. <laughs> And I think my criticism of like the chess culture is that humans aren't robots, you know, and, uh, you know, like you aren't a robot. And like, just because you read about the Olympics in your break doesn't mean that you were any less dedicated to working on like these diseases that you were working on, you know? And so I think um, in my 20s, and like maybe after my grad school, I think one of the most important lessons that I le learned is that it's okay to be human, you know, you can't just operate as a robot all the time. Uh, that life really sucks if you're trying to be a robot. <laughs> because we're just, humans are just bad at being robots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so true. Yeah, I, I, we could get into like an, a whole other robot conversation. Like, I feel like we could talk for, for hours, but you probably have things to do. Um, This so, was really lovely. Thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. <laughs> yeah, it was super fun.